your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me here in the studio is my good buddy Harmon Dial. Harmon, what's going on, man? A lot. It's been a crazy time. June's always um, so many things going on. It feels like the news cycle doesn't stop, and I honestly kind of like the fa- uh, honestly kind of like the pace. It's a nice sprint uh, right into mid July. Well, so. you've been sprinting the entire time. I mean, you've been churning articles left, right, and center as you've been kind of you've been moving away from just purely Canuck stuff to kind of a more of a national scope. And I've been enjoying all your work on it. So we're going to discuss that today. I thought a good starting point for us though would be I mean, you've had a week or so now, I guess, to uh, to unwind since being in Buffalo for the draft combine. But I thought I'd kind of get your takes on that and sort of what the buzz was on. I guess not on on the floor, maybe in the suites. I don't know. I don't know what the what the setup was like there. But I'm sure it's it's like a nice congregation of of the hockey world, right? Everyone comes. I'm sure you're hearing a lot of stuff, chatter, rumors, stuff like that. So I thought we could chat about that a little bit. Yeah. So right off the bat, it's fascinating that, as you mentioned, I think the congregation aspect, especially with a lot of top agents being there, is by far the most important part of the combine. Like the actual physical testing, because it was my first combine. So look, I know you don't put a ton of stock into that. But I still figured combine week, like the physical testing must be an important component, must be smack in the middle of the week. No, it's legitimately an afterthought. It's on the Saturday and teams are there for the whole week. You see all these general managers, all these agents, most of them are are like, okay, Friday, combine's next day, we're flying out. Legitimately on Saturday, the day of the physical testing, you have maybe five general managers left. And what they basically have is on the ground floor sort of level of the combine, each team just has their strength and conditioning personnel. So first of all, I thought that was really interesting to where for these teams, I think the biggest takeaway is actually getting to meet these prospects in person, the interview process. If you really like somebody, take them out for dinner. Also get a chance to meet with agents like that week. For example, there's a little restaurant on the seventh floor where all, you know, there's, there aren't many media people there. It's a very relaxed environment, but we kind of just like chill there. And so like, that's the restaurant where, Brisson and Chevalier sat down early in the week and, you know, they were basically like, yeah, Dubois not signing here, right? right? So it's a lot of that sort of thing going on. And I mean, in terms of draft related chatter, I think the, the most interesting thing for me was with Mitchkov. Now, of course, this is my first time at the combine, so I don't know how much I should read into some of the chatter and the buzz. So an important qualifier there, I'm not reporting anything, but Right off the bat, it seemed seemed interesting that based off of what people were just kind of talking about there, I'd be surprised if Mitchkov goes top five at this point. I, I think there's a good chance that he'll slide out of the top five. Now, with that said, I don't think he'll slide a whole lot beyond that. Like people, you know, a team like Vancouver at 11 being like, ooh, could, could Mitchkov slide there? I wouldn't get your hopes up. But it was sort of interesting to hear a lot of, you know, hear a lot of buzz that, you know, all the chatter around him was just around the negatives, right? And I don't know if that part of it's, if you're a team that's drafting later in the top 10, trying to yeah, you're like, oh I, oh, I would never draft oh, this guy. Stay away from him. Yes. So, of course, I'm taking it with a grain of salt. But, man, there were there were a lot of sort of question marks and uncertainty around Mitchkov. And that's just a continued theme of what we've sort of heard going into the combine even. Well, I think a, a big sort of, piece of context there right is there was initial concern about like the lack of obviously in-person viewings of him this season in terms of actually playing then there was concern that oh you wouldn't actually even get to talk to him at all in this pre-draft process I think part of that has been alleviated at least a little bit because I think since then it's been reported that he's actually going to come to Nashville and he's going to meet with at least a handful of these teams before the draft which I wonder if that'll sort of alleviate some of those concerns it's interesting you bring up that top five though because Bob McKenzie just released his big board and I believe he has Mitchkov fifth on his list and generally he has pretty good accuracy yeah. with those things and if you look at the betting markets which are generally pretty indicative of how things are trending Mitchkov is still the favorite to be the fifth overall pick according to the odds so there's a lot to consider that I'm sure he easily could slide a couple picks there I I think any sort of possibility of you know there was there was some buzz there where when Columbus got the third pick it was like oh Yarmo's Yarmo's a bit of a loose cannon he he's not afraid to do something against convention I think that ship has sort of sailed in terms of that third or even maybe a bit too risky for San Jose at four but I think as soon as you get to Montreal at five I think it becomes seriously in play 
Yeah, and that's where, interestingly, for me, it was after those big centers. Like, initially, that was my thought was, okay, Montreal seems to make a lot of sense in that spot. Uh, but again, you actually heard Montreal, like, not a lot of buzz with them and Mitchkov. And again, who knows, right? This time of year, you don't know, you know, what you can trust, what you can't. Part of me wonders if, also just generally speaking, and this isn't specifically related to Montreal at five, but when we have this Mitchkov discussion, now I think the conversation has almost started shifting to people are kind of picking apart his game a little bit. Mm. And, oh, the lack of competitiveness and the defensive concerns and all those things. I think there are two factors at play there. Number one, I think he's been in the limelight for so long that I think his game is starting to get picked apart to a degree that Will Smith, for example, his game would not get picked apart. Right. Second, for the teams that have concerns about, let's say, the contract, right? You're, let's say you're a general manager and you're, you, you don't have the longest rope. And yes. In, in your own mind, you're thinking... You need to that, have something sooner rather than later exactly, to show for your efforts. Yeah. Exactly. So that aspect and, and, and whatever your concerns are, I almost wonder if now some of these teams are trying to almost look at his game and there's an element of confirmation bias of like creating more justification not to want to well, not to want to take him so i find all of those dynamics really interesting because again for me i think on pure talent that he sh- he absolutely unequivocally should be top five player in this draft class so I'm like that to me is still by far the biggest wild card. And I don't think coming out of the combine, there was any more certainty around what's going to happen with that situation. And on, and honestly, like having had discussions with other teams beforehand too, like other teams don't know either. Other teams yeah, don't yeah. have a sense of it. Right. right. A, a lot of times with, with some of these prospects, if you, you know, have conversations with scouts or, or whatever teams will at least maybe have an idea of, what others are thinking and they hear a lot of the buzz before people on the outside do like i'll give you a great example um when barrett hayton got drafted really early by arizona and it was a big shock for us it wasn't a shock for teams right Mm -hmm. i I had a chance to talk to ken holland after and he's like yeah we we heard that buzz but just generally speaking with mitchcock people don't really know what's going to happen they like even internally there's a sense of we don't know where he's going to go so i thought that mystery that uncertainty was still a, a really interesting takeaway what other what other things were because we're gonna have a lot of time to talk about Mitch Coffey, especially once the draft comes when we kind of actually have more clarity on where he goes. Um, what other sort of stuff were people talking about? I, th- I find that you know because you wrote up an article about it in terms of sort of some like a sample of some of the interview questions and kind of what teams are trying to glean from that. Obviously, it's fraught with a ton of error in terms of like you're doing a fifteen to twenty minute meeting with an eighteen year old who's like level of confidence on that in that setting might wildly vary and might also not be indicative of all of their character or their personality or what they're going to be like as a player, of course, right? So you get this wide range of outcomes there, and obviously teams are trying to accomplish different things as well. I don't know, like, what were there any sort of, like, um, interesting takeaways or potentially, like, people who were getting a lot of attention for good or bad reasons stemming from that interview process? Yeah, I think generally when it comes to the interview process, every team takes something different away. Every team approaches it differently, and like it's it's so interesting because some teams will have, for example, a room with all their scouts, GMs, and it's like an intimidating sort of yeah, yeah. room. You're just surrounded by all of these people, and it's uh, and look, sometimes they might want to grill you straight up because they they know these kids are well coached by their agents. And so a lot of times it can be about throwing guys off, and and but other teams might take an opposite approach and go our best shot at actually getting to know this kid and getting him to open up might be to just have maybe two people in the room, casual, informal conversation, have a warm sort of um, back and forth and, and try and open the guy up that way. Yep. Um, and and there are really strange sort of differences that you hear, even in terms of the, like the legit takeaways from those um, interactions, because like one story that came up was, so Nick Suzuki in his draft year, there were there was at least one team that walked away from the interview process thinking this guy we don't think he has what it takes to be a leader at the next level in the NHL mm. despite all his teammates obviously ra- raving about him and i think like it, it's just like wow that's a crazy conclusion to draw and it's just because in that sort of setting suzuki maybe 
didn't fit the mold of like the strong eye contact, right, right, like right. The, the firm, the, handshake, the, firm handshake, yeah, course, yeah, the yeah. loud personality that you expect in a typical captain or whatever. And I think that was honestly one of my biggest takeaways, especially talking to people in the industry is a lot of, a lot of times teams go in to this interview process, having a guy in mind that they really like, and then they just draw the wrong conclusion about him, take him off the board, take somebody else. And that player that they passed up on because of the interview ends up becoming a really good NHL player. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the, the most classic example of that, that I can think of is, is the, the Matt Barzal story, right? Where he was like very off putting to teams that interviewed him because they were straight up asking him like, all right, should we take you or this guy uh, that was in his draft class? And he's like me. Right. And, and, yeah. and, and then people were like, Oh, this guy's way too cocky for like our taste. We, 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 he's, you know, he's not going to fit in in our room or whatever. And then I believe the team that obviously traded up to get him at 16th overall, the New York Islanders didn't even interview him in that entire process. Cause they obviously didn't have that pick. They, they traded Griffin Reinhardt. Well, for all, 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 like, that's a classic example of, so much of it comes down to inter- interpretation because some team might look at that as cocky. Another team might look at that as this kid's got such a high level of self-belief. That's the level of belief you'll need to overcome the adversity in the NHL. And you want players with that type of swagger. Of course. Right. So it's like, I think polar I would opposites. say it's to, it's necessary like yeah. for, for the, for this profession, right? Like you're going to overcome a lot. You're going to need to face a lot of adversity, but also like a lot of self doubt, but also like doubt from the outside. Right. If you're going through a slump, like there's all sorts of scenarios you're gonna be placed in, and you need you need almost like an an unreasonable level of self confidence to be successful yeah. in a lot of cases, right? So in a lot like, and this isn't just even hockey, but any any industry, whether it's uh, music, whether it's you know UFC, like whatever it is, if you look at the people that that are at the top, a lot of times they just have an almost irrational level of of self confidence and belief, and that's what has driven them to becoming the best at at what they are. So. 100%. I think you have to be careful not to read too much into the process because another sort of example that uh, that came up is the classic if a prospect comes from, you know, either his father or his uncle or somebody related to him played in the NHL and some of the stories you hear is, you know, that that prospect might walk into the room and his family members might be, you know, uh, have played with a scout or, of course, or yeah. there's always some sort of connection. And yeah. so the prospect comes in and first of all, coming up, he's used to the hockey industry. So he's not going to be nervous and he's going to have the strong, strong handshake and the good eye contact. And then the first couple questions might even be like, Oh, like tell your dad, I say, hi, how's your dad? How's your uncle doing? Played with him back in the day in, in 89, like all these things. And so the prospect naturally feels comfortable as opposed to a guy who, you know, comes from a different socioeconomic background, maybe didn't even anticipate having a shot to play in the NHL until very recently and knows how much is at stake, he might be nervous. And that, again, might not be indicative of his actual ability um, at all. So I think that's one of the biggest realizations, especially in a 15 to 20 minute setting. Uh, there might be more mistakes made in the process right, than positive gains from than it. positive yeah. gains from it and i'm just i would just be curious to know how much teams have started to learn from getting burned and um and and some you know some teams have evolved and they just use it as like a we're gonna get to at least see this guy and so that way if we end up drafting him at least we've met him in person and had a conversation before so um every team approaches differently and some of the draft interview questions too like here like montreal has by far the the strangest reputation when it comes to this. You, you talk to a couple of their prospects. First of all, they ask every prospect what animal they'd be. What, they what's your take... answer for that? Sorry? What's your answer for that? The funniest one I heard from the prospects is a mama bear because uh, <laughs> mama bear is protective of her cubs. Right. And you're going to stick up for your teammates. Of course. Heard a lot of uh, wolves because mm. uh, I think Kobe Barlow said a, a, a wolf because he's comfortable both hunting in a pack and on, on his own. Interesting. Um. No, like some of these were also just straight up weird. There was one where it was like from Montreal. You have a mission to shoot down. Uh, I, I might be slightly butchering this, but something to the effect of you have, you have a mission to shoot down like a submarine or something, and you're sort of on the ocean or whatever, and uh, and your friends are in trouble. They might be drowning. Uh, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna shoot down the submarine to finish the mission, or, or are you gonna your save friends? Your friends? <laughs> oh it's like, or like another one was, you are in line at the ATM, and there are a couple of um, yeah, yeah, yeah. old uh, old ladies in front of you, and some guy just cuts line. What are you gonna do? 
I'm I'm scared to think what NHL teams would think is the right answer for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the the one Kale Odelius got asked last year was, would you rather again by Montreal? Would you rather pick up ten dollars off the seat of the toilet bowl or fifty dollars, like literally in the toilet? In the toilet. Mm. Well, and I guess the right answer is fifty dollars because you're willing to go to the dirty areas. I guess. Uh, <laughs> all like right. legitimately, I think that's what they would have been looking for. You know, I um, I don't think it's necessarily actionable one way or another because he's been so firmly entrenched it feels like in the third slot throughout this entire process behind Bedard and Ventilli of course but I've heard very rave reviews about Leo Carlson throughout this process purely in terms of like how um, committed for like a young player he is to his craft in terms of getting better and obviously I don't think it's necessarily a negative to be the other way, right? Like as as an eighteen year old, it's okay to have other interests. There's stuff beyond. Look at Nikola Jokic, perfect example. Absolutely. Right? How many? This guy does not care about like basketball is not his main priority at all. And it's like, how many teams would meet a guy, a, a prospect like that, and go and he's be not off put by that? Of course, yeah. The whole Dougie Hamilton thing, right? Yeah. Like instead of going to Moxie's with his teammates, he's interested in going to the museum and stuff like that. Like there's of of course, it doesn't necessarily matter, but just purely like. I think something that pretty much every player is going to come across is a lot of the stuff that's worked for you to get you to this point, once you come to the NHL, will no longer be as effective, right? Like you still Mm -hmm. might be able to get by with it, but you won't be the star player that you were previously just doing that one thing. And so there's going to need to be a certain level of commitment to the craft in terms of like not only working on your game physically, but also like tape study and, and, and being willing to take on different roles and integrate different skills into your arsenal. And so everything I've heard about Carlson is like all he does is hockey essentially. And like, I I, I find that very enticing. He's going to go third, I assume regardless. Um, but that's just something that I've heard throughout this process in terms of him specifically. I'm sure that applies to others as well, but um, I just thought that was an interesting. Note Another like why one other prospect that I think um, sort of start recently and, he, and he's had a lot of momentum going even into the the combine is a Tom Willander because mm. he had a strong performance for Sweden at the U18s. There's obviously some recency bias with that. I think for most of the year he was projected middle to late first round, but obviously has that momentum and then you meet him at the combine and this this guy, first of all, it always helps when you're well built and um like look strong, look lean, especially as a right shot defenseman. I'm sure a lot of teams are automatically sort of salivating at, at that prospect, but also his confidence level, like when you speak to him, um, this is a player who seems very laser focused, very charismatic, and that's not always the case with uh, with Swedes coming over. Just because they, like their English might not might be something that they're working at, but Will Anders was amazing, very lighthearted, and and on top of that, I think one thing that sort of st- stood out about him is most defensemen that develop from Sweden stay in Sweden but he's made the commitment to go to Boston University and play in the NCAA this Mm -hmm. fall his reasoning first of all that's a very sort of interesting decision right and secondly I think teams like when I spoke to Willand he said teams like that when they had that conversation about him going to um, the NCAA right away because his logic was I'll get more development reps playing big minutes. I will get a chance to get accustomed to the smaller rink size quicker. And just in general, the cultural sort of differences with North America, I'll be able to adjust a lot, uh, a lot faster. I think teams like that decision that he had to go to the NCAA and just knowing his persona, I'm sure he left a really positive impression, which in combination with the momentum that he has coming out of the U18s, I I really think that'll boost his draft stock. Where do you think amongst the amongst the other defensemen that he that he ranks? It's a really interesting one. I because it seems like Reinbacher is like entrenched as as number one on a lot. Yeah, of I don't lists, think there's right? a consensus on the yeah. second. To be totally honest, because I know a lot of um, I know there's a lot of buzz around Sandin Pelica, but of course he's an undersized offensive guy, so you know that that could throw a wrench into it. Dmitry Simishev yeah. on talent should be. In my opinion, the second uh, best defenseman because he's a six foot four guy that can skate, defend, yeah, I guess it, move it, the puck. It, it it and this varies a lot not only from organization to organization, but like analyst to analyst in terms of how you weigh uh, like tools or projectable skills yeah. versus like actual present day production. 
And I think that, I mean, I don't think there's necessarily a right answer. Obviously, if you're producing right now, like that, that's, that's a good thing. But I also don't think it precludes you. Like I, I understand why you'd be like, all right, well, if there's tools here for us to work with, we can mold this player into something that can eventually produce the way others are right now. Yeah, and so, I mean, it could be Simishev, it could be Willander in the eyes of some teams. Because for him, at, at this point, I, you know, I'd, I'd expect him to go top 15, especially because he's a right shot guy. I mean, those types of players, teams always reach for them. And it's really interesting because this is a draft class where, you know, when you spoke to scouts around the time of uh, the draft lottery, because of how forward heavy it was, a lot of them went, I wouldn't even be defenseman taking, or I wouldn't even be comfortable taking any defenseman in the top 10, just based off pure talent. But I did sort of, you know, some digging into it, and it's it's rare. I think you'd have to go back to like the 70s for the last time you had a draft class where, uh, or the early 80s for the last time you had a draft class where a defenseman did not go in the top 10. And I think teams just have the positional need and they'll sort of reach and overdraft for them. But it is interesting because overall, I think next year's crop of defensemen is a lot um, is a lot more talented. And I wonder how many teams will forego potentially best player available and leave talent on the board, especially with some of these wingers, and might end up regretting it. Mm. That's that's a legit thing I think about. What if you extend that top ten framework to top eleven, with with no no team at eleventh <laughs> in mind that is, is obviously in need of a defenseman within their organization? Yeah, I mean, and that's where there's been a lot of buzz around Vancouver and, and Willander. They obviously mm. took him out for for dinner that week. Fits an organizational need, uh, but there's so many different ways this this class could play out the one thing if you're Vancouver and Zach Benson falls to you I'm sorry but if you take Will Lander ahead of Benson that's that'd be tough I well Benson's ninth on Bob McKenzie's big board as I said and that's I think that's like fair like I would even have him even higher than that but I've also seen certain rankings that have him like in the mid to late teens right and I think that's that's way too late because what's one big takeaway that we saw I mean, all year, if you've just been watching hockey, but especially this postseason, like the value of being able to carry the puck into the zone and then turn that into a scoring chance is is such a rare commodity that's so valuable. And like Benson is right up there with anyone in this class at doing exactly that. I just, I don't, in terms of the upside of that talent, acknowledging all the risks of his frame and everything like that, I just do not understand how you could, once you get into that 10 range, how you could justify passing that up. Well, especially with uh, with the tenaciousness he has, yes. also being one of the best four checkers in the yep. WHL. Like, this isn't just a guy who is the typical skilled, undersized winger. He's got all that skill, all that hockey IQ, but he's also got an insane level of competitiveness, the ability to win battles. This is a guy with legit, all around value. He's really good defensively. And uh and so to me that level of, of skill set to be able to get it, you know, towards the end of the top ten or, or at eleven even, that would be a home run sort of uh cut in terms of the potential upside there. Especially because it, it is interesting that um you know I was thinking back to the twenty nineteen class and of course it's different because they're totally different players stylistically, but you also look at Cole Caulfield at the time, you know, people, right. people looked at him as uh undersized guy that doesn't skate very well. And so despite him typically being ranked in the top 10, like consensus there, some even had him as high as five, six, he ended up going to 15 to Montreal. Yep. Right. So that's why I wonder with these crop of wingers, especially in a loaded class, whether he's the type of player um, that just based off profile is, um, you know, is someone that uh, could be available to a team like Vancouver, you know, well, at 11. not only did Caulfield that year, I remember, fall to 15, but there were a couple of defensemen that were taken right ahead of him that it felt like it was purely like, all right, you don't actually think this is the best player available. You're just drafting for either need or for the fact that you think a defenseman is more valuable in this draft slot and that's why he fell right like otherwise yeah if they all positions being equal i imagine even those teams would have taken him ahead of those players so i think that might be a good sort of lesson to learn in terms of thinking about where benson might go in this year's class and and the value that could present to a team like the canucks um anything else before we go to break here on uh on the combine or, or conversations you had around there 
No, I think we we covered it pretty well. Yeah. Okay. Harm, let's uh let's go to break here, and then when we come back, we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about um some off season stuff to to get people ready for that. You are listening to the Hockey PDO Cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Big guests and bigger opinions on everything happening in Leafsland. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here in the Hockey PDO cast. Got Harmon Dial here in studio. Harm, let's, uh, we talked a bit about sort of the combine and the draft process in part one of the show. Let's move on to some more offseason stuff as we get ready here for what should be a fun couple weeks of, of player movement and stuff. You, uh, you also recently put out a piece that was kind of looking at the most interesting storylines for this offseason to get ready for. I'll give you the floor here. You can pick anyone you want, and we can kind of go back and forth in terms of whether it's player or whether it's team situation, something to kind of be like, hmm, what this team decides to do or what this happens with this player could really have a domino effect on the rest of the moves. Yeah, I think right off the bat, there's so many different directions that we can go. <laughs> For me, Colorado is interesting. Yeah. Because they now have certainty that Landis Cog is going to be on LTIR for mm-hmm. next season. So that gives them an extra $7 million to... Um, to play with, I think after you count for potential RFA deals, they'll still have a decent chunk of cap space to uh, work. How with. do you even account for RFA deals, considering the uncertainty around Byram's deal in particular? There, right? It's, it's like it's, it's almost impossible to account for because you could go in two wildly different extreme directions with. Yeah, it. and th- and that's part of what's so interesting about Colorado's offseason is, how, like, how do you approach a guy that has so much promise and potential, and if he's healthy, is a legit top pair defenseman, but he gets hurt a lot and mm-hmm. has concussion histories with Byram. It's it's tough. So, yeah, I mean, right off the bat, that's a really fascinating question mark in terms of do you go bridge or long-term, and that's going to dictate how much cap flexibility you have. And then beyond that, you also have Devon Taves, who's a UFA at the end of next season. I think part of Colorado's decision-making process for this summer should begin with, okay, what's what are we going to do with Taves? Or do we feel comfortable being able to extend him? Because... I look at Colorado now, and you're going to have to re-sign Byron, presumably, at a significant raise from his ELC. And then if you're keeping Taves because he's been such an essential piece, his cap has been 4.1 to this point. Like That's going to be a a significant bump, and you already have a lot of blue-line talent. So it's like, is one of your defensemen like Sam Gerrard expendable, especially because you need help up front? But you can only then – you don't want to move Gerard before you know that you have Taves right. locked up long-term. And the other side of it too is there's also the side of the argument where it's like Gerard is cost-controlled. Now, he's not nearly as good as Taves, but with Taves, can you afford to pay him what he's going to be worth on his next uh, next deal? And if not, is he a chip that you might have to monetize instead of losing him for for nothing? So it's like a lot of uncertainty around the back end. And I think the domino effect of that sort of then impacts how much cap and trade flexibility you have to upgrade your forward group, which I think is their biggest need. It is certainly. Uh, It's a very tricky thing to try to navigate because, you know, McKinnon's extension is kicking in this year, right, as well as going up to 12.6. I don't see a scenario where as scary as it is to say, all right, we're going to potentially trade Sam Gerrard to improve our forwards and then maybe lose Devon Taves next year. I don't see a scenario where, and I would think they would view themselves, even though they've already won that cup uh, two years ago now, they're firmly in their Stanley Cup window here, right? Like when you have Nathan McKinnon and Kale McCarr, you're obviously, you should be taking a bit of a longer term view because you're hopefully going to, you know, be trying to win a Stanley Cup for the next four to six years at least, as opposed to just a one-year deal. But also, like, once you have those two guys, you owe it to yourself to give yourself a best yeah. chance you can to win a Cup. And I don't see any scenario where tr- you trade away Devon Taves and come out better for it next yeah. season because, I mean, not only the 4 uh, the one he's playing at, but he's just such a valuable player to them that I don't – you can't really fill those minutes. Like, he, it's one thing to say, all right, well, we have Sam Gerrard, but – they're just such different players that it's almost it's almost irrelevant yeah. in that case. And so 
as scary as it is, if I were them, I would almost have to view it from the lens of we're just going to try to feel the best team we can next season and then sort of deal with it after that. And whether that means retaining Taves on a long-term extension, that's an, that's a different conversation, but I, I almost like, I think that's the only way you can look at it. Cause otherwise if you're trading him and trying to get too cute with it, I don't love the scenario. You kind of box yourself into doing that. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. Uh, the other side of it too, is when it comes to the cap situation, you're going to have some money to play with this summer, but how do you weigh a scenario where like with Landis Cog, are you operating as if he's going to return and be healthy again? And his money is going to come off of LTIR for the 2024, 25 season, in which case, how does that approach the types of players and the contracts you sign in terms of, would you then prefer to add guys with only that have big salary, but only a year of term left mm. so that you can potentially navigate it? Or is it a scenario where it's like, we don't even know if Landis Cog is, is going to be back for the 2024, 25 season. We'll cross that bridge and, and deal with that situation when we get there, especially because we're a team that has attractive contracts. And if, and if we have to, we can move pieces around and clear cap that way. But that's an interesting sort of sidebar too, is, you know, you're going to have the flexibility for next season, but what are you assuming is going to happen with Landis Cog and his contract beyond that? Yes. Yeah. I, I think having won the 2022 cup also buys them a lot of yeah. leeway here as well. Right. If it, if it was a continuation of like losing in the second round every year and then losing in the first round this year, I think it'd be kind of a different tone of conversation. Whereas this way you've at least bought yourself a bit of leash that way. But I don't know. I, I think they'll be aggressive. Certainly. I think there's a bunch of things they can do. I'm doing, um, I'm planning on doing hopefully, um, a show with our pal Thomas Drans here next week, hopefully kind of trades we'd like to see. And I imagine the abs are going to be very firmly yeah. centered around a lot of those packages and interesting things that they could do. But, you know, they were, they were weirdly quiet at the deadline. I think part of it was still a bit of that lingering uncertainty about whether Landis Cog was going to be back and whether they could use that full seven or not. And they ultimately just basically wound up kind of, you know, all they did was acquire Lars Eller essentially. Right. And that was the gist of, of their trade deadline moves in hindsight, probably should have been a bit more aggressive in, in terms of trying to well, improve their forward. I actually but, wonder if that was intentional. I yeah. wonder if they looked at that and went, we've had so many injuries. We've been so banged up. Our team doesn't quite look the same. So much uncertainty around Landis Cog. Like this might just not be our year, especially because we went so aggressively all in the year before. We don't have many assets. This might not be our year. Let's, let's restock so that we can go aggressively um, at things in the off season and at next year's deadline, I wonder. I wonder how much of that was maybe strategic. Yeah, and they did keep their uh, their first in this year's draft, which, which I, I expect they'll. they'll, they'll, use. they'll yeah. I doubt they'll be tra drafting a player and then yeah, grooming no, into the I, other team. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep this. Uh, let's keep this draft going. I'm gonna. I'm gonna give you a tee. Let's go back and forth. Sure. Yeah. Here, right? uh, okay, the Seattle Kraken. So they were one win this year away from a Western Conference Finals appearance. Their AHL team came one win away from winning the Calder Cup, right? They lost yesterday. Um, they only have $60.5 million in cap commitments if they choose to buy out Chris Drieger this year. Now, they have a bunch of RFAs to deal with, right? Daniel Sprong, who had an awesome year for them. Morgan Geeky, Vince Dunn, who's going to be due for a massive pay raise. Will Borgen. But there's a lot of flexibility there to add. Over the next two years, next summer, they're going to be clearing $13 million in Eberle, Wenberg, and Justin Schultz. The following year, they're going to clear 13 again in terms of existing contracts they have. And so I'm very curious to see how aggressive they are in trying to build off the success they had this year and potentially improving their team, right? They have their first, they have three second rounders in this year's class. I imagine they're not too eager about trading away a bunch of draft picks for a roster player because they're still trying to kind of like build out their organization and also by all accounts their draft last year was phenomenal especially with the four second rounders they had and so you know they probably probably feel good about at infusing their system with talent with those picks so i don't think they're gonna all of a sudden be like oh we're gonna package all three of these seconds for some player that's gonna help us now but the point i'm trying to make is they have a lot of different ways that they can pretty much be in on any single player that's available on the trade market this year. And so I'm very fascinated to see how aggressively they pursue any of those guys. Yeah. And this is where I think one potential sort of, I mean, there are a couple of needs you could sort of um, address. My initial thought was maybe the back end because when you look at this past season, I think it was around mid March when I did 
a statistical look at every team's top pair, and Seattle's ranked number second in the NHL in terms of goal differential. Mm. Um, now, a lot of that was PDO-driven, so I'm expecting regression there because as much as I like Dunn and Larson, do I expect them to be the second or third best top pair in the NHL year after year? No, I don't. And then beyond that, you also have Carson Soucy presumably walking. He played on the third pair. And you uh, and and with Lexiak Borgen, that's a fine second pair, but it, it's not yeah. amazing, right? Yeah. So, and this is where you and I were sort of talking about talking about it the other day. Like mm. a Matt Grizzlick would make a lot of sense in terms of if you're trying to find a left shot defenseman with Riker Evans sort of coming coming into the fold and having such a great year in the AHL. Like my initial thought had been, what if they go after a guy like a Hannafin? But then you know you and I talked about it when we're like, ah, it probably doesn't make sense. And I looked at Evans and I was like, man, he's promising. He's 21. He could, he could make an impact soon. And you're already paying big money to Alexiak to Dunn as well. Probably don't need to spend big on another lefty, but this is where, you know, uh, whether it's Grizzlick or, you know, a four probably more so Grizzlick in Boston as a cap dump D they need right. to ship salary out. Wouldn't cost you a lot to, um, to acquire. And one of those defensemen, could come in there, give you more depth on the left side, and um, and be legitimately impactful. It just sort of depends on what skill set you're looking for. If you want more of a more of a dynamic puck mover, somebody who can drive five and five results, Grizzlick's perfect for that. If you're looking for more of a big body shot blocking penalty kill type, then uh, Forbort could be a fit. And I, either one of those guys would be cheap. And the biggest advantage of those guys is they only have one year left on their deals. This isn't a case of you're having to go sign a free agent and you're going to be worried about how that contract's going to age long term. Right. Yeah. It'll be a very like Carolina West approach, right? Yeah. To use some of that flexibility to just be like, all right, we'll take this good player and just use him and then not worry about the long term ramifications of it because there'll be a UFA again and then we'll just keep doing it. Yeah. Especially um, because it didn't, didn't cost us a lot. We're just sort of, this is our way of using our cap space as a. As a weapon. You know, something we saw with them this year, I think na- I think your natural inclination would, would be to say, all right, the most logical area of improvement for them would be to add some sort of like high-level game-breaking offensive talent up front, right? Because it was a great story that they had so much scoring depth and they were like rolling their four lines and we saw them use that to their advantage in round one against Colorado in particular where they were like polar opposite teams. But in the postseason, you kind of bump into a bit of a ceiling at some point where you don't have like someone who can just create effortlessly for others against any competition, right? And so you'd say, all right, well, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's a center or whether it's one of these wingers that's going to be available theoretically on the trade market this year, Seattle would be interested in that. Their barrier to entry in their forward group is so high though, right? Like it's, it's, and that's kind of the problem they bumped into with Shane Wright this year where there was a lot of talk like, how can you not get this guy a lineup spot on the Seattle Kraken? And then it's like, well, you look at their actual forward group and it's like, they have 12 really good NHL players who are playing there. Like it's, it's, it's really tough to carve out a spot for yourself. And so I'd be curious to see whether they'd be interested in potentially consolidating a few of those into a higher level player and then trying to fill the depth elsewhere. Um, And actually what they do with Shane Wright, whether they use him as a potential bargaining chip or whether they play the long game. Cause I believe he, unless he makes the crack next year, he has to go back to the OHL, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, what a season he had. He played 24 AHL games for them this year in the, in the playoffs. In the regular season, he played eight AHL games, eight NHL games, 20 OHL games. Just what a mess of a system that he can't just play full-time in the AHL. At least he got these postseason reps um, for Coachella. But yeah, I mean, I, I think they can go any number of directions, and that's that's ex- that's an exciting reason for why I have them on my list here. What uh, What's the next storyline to watch for you? Well, one thing I just wanted to quickly add about Seattle is if they add somebody – in terms of their forward group, it has to be somebody you look at and go, this guy could potentially revamp our power play mm. because their power play, I believe it ranked 22nd in the league this year. Yep. Like that's their amazing five on five scoring, but power play because they don't have that elite that's weapon. Where that, yeah, that's where, that's skill. where it shows. Um, beyond that, St. Louis is really interesting to me because that's a team that when I look at their blue line situation and you go through Nick Letty, Tori Krug, uh, Pareko, Falk, all of them had really bad seasons last year. They're all signed with, uh, I think, at least three years of term left. And they, I believe, all four of those guys have no trade clauses. Mm-hmm. So 
because of that back-end contract situation, I would look at that and go, that's a team that should be looking to retool. Shouldn't be too aggressive about wanting to turn things around quickly. But on the other hand, it doesn't seem like Dog Armstrong is just going to sit idly by. I mean, around the deadline, we already heard about them potentially using the two extra se- two extra first-round picks that they had. Um, and there were sort of buzz around them. And could they go after a Meyer or, or a Chikrin? And at this point, I would be surprised if they kept all of their first-rounders. I'm really curious to see how they approach it because I could see a scenario where they look at what went wrong last year and go, well, we're still only a year removed from taking Colorado deep in round two Mm -hmm. and giving them a tough fight. We sure our our blue line and goaltending had a down year, but we've brought in a new uh, defensive coach, Mike, Mike Weber, to hopefully revamp things and and that could problem solve things and we know Justin Falk can play be- way better than he has and we know Colton Pareko can play way better than he has and if we make an addition here and I'm like I could see how they look at themselves and might be aggressive in how quickly they want to retool things and try and win in this uh, window with uh, with Thomas and, and Kairu I'm fascinated to see how aggressive or patient they are. Yeah, I mean, they have picks 10, 25, and 29. And as you said, I, I'd i be pretty surprised if they make and then keep all three of those picks. Uh, they were aggressively in on Meyer and Chikrin. It's The blue line's a big problem. Like 20, yeah. having $27 million committed next season in the, in five guys, if you include Scandella, he expires after next year. And then the four other guys who are obviously going to be much tougher to to shed their salary if you, if you choose to. Um, that's a problem because their four group is already – highly intriguing at the very least right with thomas Cairo, they got ran on a, on a one-year deal still um which nevich like i like the forwards a lot but it's gonna be tough with that blue line unless you get a taker on one of those contracts to kind of work around that and build a team that's more than just sort of like a f- exciting high scoring team and actually get them back to being a legitimate stanley cup contender now i know people around the league like are very interested in the state of the central division next season and are viewing that as like every team there is almost going to, I wonder if they're going to be a bit more aggressive because they're going to talk themselves into, all right, well, the quality around us isn't that high. This is an opportunity for us, especially if the Jets become big sellers, right? All of a sudden that's going to open up another playoff spot there. So I don't know. I'm very curious. I think they will be aggressive and that makes them a, a great pick. So this was a solid choice by you, but I'm not sure what the actual moves are there beyond getting out from under one of those defenseman contracts. Yeah, and for me, I, 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 my honest belief is they should just stick with the process, stay patient, use their picks, restock their system. And um, I just think the back-end situation is insurmountable. I, I, I think that's – you can't win with that, in my opinion. But look, I could be wrong. Again, they're bringing a new defense coach. I mean – Yeah, we'll see about we'll, that. We'll see. Um, okay, my next pick, the New York Rangers. So right now, by my account, they have $66.5 million committed to seven forwards, four defensemen, and one goalie. They have Keandre Miller and Alex, Alexis Lafreniere as RFAs. Then the following summer, Kako, Lindgren, and Schneider are RFAs. And how they navigate this will be interesting because I am the number one leader of the Keandre Miller fan club. And so I think it's almost necessary to get him signed for as long of a term as you possibly can. That's going to bump up his AAV, obviously, especially since you're buying peak seasons. And anything, I think any contract that's signed that's longer than two years this offseason is going to come with a bit of a bump there as well because I think everyone's sort of aiming for that summer of 2025 as like a massive cap jump as we've seen with some of these contracts. So if you're getting a Keandre Miller to sign for a seven and seven or eight-year deal, I assume that's going to come with a pretty high salary as well. And so whether they're able to sort of finagle that and how they build out the rest of the team will be something to watch for me. And it's the same situation that in Edmonton with Evan Bouchard. Mm. With, um, like, man, I, part of me, like, I don't know if worries is the right word, but I just don't think they have the cap space to sign him long-term. And they're in an even more dire situation than, um, than New York in terms of uh, their lack of flexibility. So if you can only go short-term, especially the difference between Miller and, and Bouchard is Bouchard's going to play PP1. Right. And he could rack up a ton of points. Just had 17 points in 12 playoff games. 
And so his counting stats could be juiced. If you, and if you only sign him for a year or two, you could end up with the Darnell Nurse situation again, where it's like we bridged this guy when it would have been more ideal to lock him up at a more reasonable rate long term. And now we're staring at a potentially massive contract. What are we going to do? So that kind of it's it's interesting parallel sort of situations there for both teams that are in a window to win now. And at least in Edmonton, Edmonton situation, especially the timeline of dry settling McDavid deals, I'm sure they'll just go like we just have to we have to grind him down and go for a bridge and deal with that problem later. I'm curious what uh, what approach New York takes because I'm sure at this point Chris Drury is feeling is starting to feel the pressure. There's a lot mm-hmm. riding on next season. Right. You make the coaching change. You know the ownership group isn't a patient one. Sure, the Eastern Conference final run the year before was great, but you had a first run exit. And again, it's funny because when a team ex- sort of exceeds expectations and, and has a you know a final four appearance. It's great on the one hand, but it also resets the bar, mm-hmm. resets expectations. Right. Everything else below that is like unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I worry about the Rangers in terms of, especially with um, with how strong the East is in general, and some of the holes that they have on uh, have on the roster. The biggest thing is they like they're buying out Barkley Goodrow, right? I haven't checked the math on that. Okay, well. Is it a buy a buyout the next two years actually saves them like beyond just his money saves him two hundred k like as a surplus next year and then a hundred k the following year because of the way his contract was structured so you save three point eight four million this year three point seven four the next year then in twenty six twenty seven is the only real tough year where it's three point six five of cap dead cap charges but the thing is is he's got what four years left on his deal at like three point six. He's 30, and the next two years are the most expensive ones of the bunch in terms of base salary. I just, unless you could talk someone into thinking that he was actually an asset for them, which I guess is possible because people around the league seem to like him, um, and I guess he has that championship pedigree. But beyond that, we've seen how expensive the price can be of shedding a one- or two-year deal. Now, with all that in mind, four years with the, with the actual salary, the team like a team like Arizona would obviously never be interested because they'd have to pay him so much the next two years. I just don't. I shudder to think what the actual like compensation would be to just get off that contract via trade. So I think you almost have to buy him out now. Maybe New York still views him as as a net positive, so maybe they would be like, "Oh well, we can't justify doing that," and they would keep him. But to cl- they have to clear money somehow to accommodate what I think Keandre Miller is worth and what they should be signing him to. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean. I had thought of the Goodrow possibility more so as like a, if a team somehow still views him as an asset and it and therefore it wouldn't be a pure cap dump, like that's probably like I hadn't really considered the buyout option seriously. I'd be curious with Laviolette coming in. Like one thing that he stressed about in his press conference introductory one was this idea that they need to be way harder to play against wow. and yeah. that they, you know, like all, all of those talking right. points, they don't have a lot of that on their roster and Barkley Goudreau would be the poster child of that. So does that change something? I, I don't know. Something to watch for. Um, okay. One, one more. Do you have one more team that you're interested in? Yeah. Um, I think in general, the like three rising powers in the Atlantic division mm. as, yeah. as a group of like who comes out ahead in terms of Buffalo, Detroit and uh, and Ottawa. Uh, I think Buffalo's obviously on paper the closest to taking that next step. I think they're probably only a, uh, a top one top four defenseman and stable goaltending away from taking that jump. All three teams have a ton of assets. All three teams have a ton of cap flexibility. And it's funny because Detroit is probably the team with the most needs and the furthest away on paper right now, but they have the most cap space and. You know, I think they have four first round picks over the next two years. And I think they have three second rounders this year that are all consecutive. At yeah. The top, top of the second so round. So they have a lot of draft capital at play here. And and there's so many different needs they could address. So, and then Ottawa as well, if Pierre Dorian is still here, I mean, he needs to make the playoffs next season, right? Like, it's been a long time of this. And especially when you go out and you, the year before trade for Alex to break it, now you make the chicken trade. It's like, all right, you're clearly pushing to win now, yeah. and this is a new ownership group. 
this better this better freaking work. I like I like how you made it sound like Pierre Dorian's life is in jeopardy. It's like if if he's still with us, uh, <laughs> curious to see what he's gonna do. Yeah, I mean no, especially with Detroit, right? Like Steve Eiserman took that calculated step back at last year's deadline in trading away Philip Ronick, trading away Tyler Bertuzzi, trying to get as many picks as he could for them. And then the press conference he gave after where he was like, yeah, we're, we've looked around and we're actually behind these two teams that we're sort of trying to measure ourselves up against. Now they were very aggressive last off season. I imagine there's going to be a same amount of incentive to kind of try to add players that can help them now. So any number of directions they could go. I think Buffalo is obviously the most intriguing of that bunch just because their ceiling is so high and also their needs are so much more like well-defined. Right. And it doesn't even necessarily like a Chris Tanev, if he's available or Dylan DeMello or, or, or that type of profile of defenseman that can play sort of second, second pair right shot minutes next to one power is enough. I don't think they need to go out and add like a star defenseman necessarily. And a goalie just, they can play 30 to 40 like average games and they can split the net with Devin Levi. Like these are very attainable tasks and they have the flexibility and the assets to get whoever they want. So, I mean, Buffalo's, I've been talking about it all year, but if you're not, if you're not on the bandwagon yet, this is, this is the last, we're about to leave the station here. Like this is the last few weeks before, uh, before it's too late to jump on. One of the interesting things with, uh, with Detroit just in general, and, and this applies for a lot of teams is, you know, I looked at them and I went, they should be the team that, is like really aggressive about trying to find whatever star talent, you know, shakes loose as inevitably it often does. The problem is when you look at the likes of, and this is more generally speaking to, um, you know, the top players available on, on the trade market. When you look at Dubois, when you look at Dubrinkit, when you, when you look at Hellebuck, it's like, I like, I really like all those players. I don't like them at whatever next contract they're going to sign. Right? right. When you look at Dubrinkit's $9 million qualifying offer, when you look at, Dubois. Now, I don't think he'll actually get nine million, but him reportedly seeking that figure, and at the very least, because of the Barzell comp wanting north of eight million, that immediately sort of turns me off. Um, and so it's like, man, it's it's a tough spot to be in because you you have the pieces necessary to go after like a Debrinket, and a lot of people have connected the connected the two. But I'm like, man, I don't love whatever contract you might sign right. next right so it's it's an inter- interesting spot to be in for a lot of teams and um, especially from the seller's point of view and trying to maximize the value of of these um you know players that you might ship out their next contracts are you know they worry me yeah well harm i'm excited for it all this is a nice little primer for us to, uh, as we move forward i'll let you quickly plug some stuff let the listeners know what you've been working on because you've been very busy as you mentioned and where they can find you yeah i've been crushing a lot of um off-season coverage lately um you know just did something the other day on uh, ranking every team's cap situation teams that can weaponize cap space a lot of stuff on like contracts that could get moved moved out just did today did something today on uh you know five trades or signings that max baltman and i would like to see so a lot of off-season activity related questions also something on um, the NHL's 10 biggest offseason questions, even related to like Pedersen and Matthews' future and, and whatnot. So it's really interesting offseason, and uh, you guys can obviously check my work out there at The Athletic. Looking forward to it, man. We'll have you on again soon. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to us. We'll be back tomorrow with one more show to close out the week here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.